Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Andrea. I am um, a part of the pastoral team here at Christ City Church, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. Um, we are in the, at the end. There's one more week, but we're, we're at the end of a series called Sir. and over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the stories of women in the Bible in an effort to learn from our spiritual foremothers who are called Eitzers. Um, and Eitzer means suitable helper. So we've been looking at these stories. It's, it's been really remarkable for me to see these women whose stories are honestly frequently skipped over, um, to, to look at them as helpers to us. So in my small group discussions, shout out to my small group. Yes! Um, in my small group discussions, we've marveled, we've kind of marveled over this thread that we've seen running through these stories of the women that we've talked about, even as all their stories are really different from one another. The, the, the thread is of, of women offering whatever it is they have, stewarding whatever resources they have and whatever circumstances they find themselves in. And we've covered this big spectrum of women. So we've, we've gone from Deborah, who was in leadership, um, and, and we kind of saw how she used her power, her privilege. She openly was willing to relinquish her comfort. So we've gone from that end of things, and we've gone to the other end to Rizpah, who we looked at, who was seemingly helpless. She had no power, no privilege. Um, she, Rizpah had her physical body, um, and that's what she used. She, she stewarded even that to protect not only her children, but other, other people's children, too. Um, I feel in, our, in my small group, at one point, we found ourselves like contrasting the stories of these women with a more popular story, um, like the, the journey of Moses, and how at several points in Moses' journey, he like tries to get out of using what he has. Like He asks God to send someone else to speak to, to Pharaoh. He resorts to murder at one point. Um, so I think just that contrast is really interesting. It's, it's amazing the things that we can find in the lesser heard stories, the stories of people who are marginalized for whatever reason. And there's such power and beauty and strength in these unexpected places, in, in places like hardship and in trial and in sorrow and all these, these hard places that we've, that we've walked through with these women as we've looked at their stories. And I think that we don't expect to find things like strength in places like that. Um, and I, I think that's honestly been a part of how powerful the stories have been of these women that we've been looking at. Because there's something really compelling about like the unexpected in a story, right? That's, that's like a compelling thing for us. I remember the first time that I saw the movie Frozen I have since seen the movie like 300 times, at least, like word for word, I can tell you that whole movie. Um, but I do remember the first time that I saw it. It was the first movie that I took uh, one of my daughters to see in the theater. And I'd been hearing so much about how great it was. And I grew up on Disney princess movies, as a child of the 80s should. Um, so I figured, I figured like the music would be great, it would be, this really entertaining, cute little story with some kind of moral lesson at the end, like even if it was just, you know, don't give up when the princess lands, whatever dude is in the story, there's some kind of happy ending. So Jolie and I are in the theater and then we're watching it, and I remember as the movie's going, because I didn't know about it, I didn't know what was going to happen, I remember thinking that the trajectory that I felt like it was going wasn't like classic Disney princess. And I was starting to wonder, like, where is this going, which you don't expect in a Disney princess movie, because you, you know where it's going. And then, at the end, to my surprise, and spoiler alert, if you have not seen Frozen, <laughs> spoiler alert, the solution to the Frozen problem in the movie wasn't what I thought it would be. Instead of it being a prince and a princess coming together to fix something, it wasn't through that kind of love. It was through the love of sisters which I, of course, I, I, think I, I think in the theater I, like, gasped. And Jolie's, like, three. I gasped and then started crying because, like, I, I have both sisters and daughters. So I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the most beautiful, unexpected movie. <laughs> but honestly, but Frozen was a hit. I mean, don't get me wrong. The music is really good, even though I don't ever want to hear it again at this point. But, 
I, I, think, I think a part of the reason why people raved about it so much was because the resolution of the story was really unexpected, for a, especially for a Disney princess movie. So there, there have been a lot of unexpected findings for me this week in preparing to preach today. Um, I will not lie. It has been a hard week. Um, today, we're looking at the encounter of a woman identified as the Syrophoenician woman. We're looking at her encounter with Jesus. And we're going to explore this idea of finding the kingdom of God in unexpected places. So the story can actually be found in two different Gospels, um, in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. We're going to be working mainly from Mark's version, but they're really similar. So let me, I'm going to read the text. Um, this is Mark 7, 24 through 30. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. So Jesus has been ministering all around the Sea of Galilee up to this point in Mark, and he sets out with his, with his disciples for the coast in the region of Tyre. Oh, I don't know if you can see this, but I, I tried to provide you with a helpful map. Um, so down at the bottom left is that little, uh, lots of arrows, is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' ministry in Mark especially, you can follow him around the different sides of the Sea of Galilee. Tyre, where this story takes place, is up that big arrow to the right of Phoenicia, and right up to the top of it, that's where Tyre is. So it's on the coast, it's far away from the hub of where his ministry has been. Um, and, and you know, maybe he's retreating, that kind of makes sense. It's a coastal town, he's trying to get away, he's been doing um, a lot of miracles and healings until people are flocking to him. They're constantly, they're constantly looking for him. Um, either way, I think he's definitely hoping to avoid people. It kind of says that in the text, like he was hoping that no one would know he was there. But word about him has spread, and so he's approached by this woman who is in the area asking for help because her daughter is being tormented by a demon. And then the two of them have this exchange in which it seems like Jesus isn't going to help her at first, but then the woman turns his answer back on him, and then he ends up helping her. So, seriously, this has been such a hard passage to study. I was so amped about this series. I was like, yes, women of the Bible, like, it's her. And then, like, we all kind of got our assigned date and, like, lady. And then I started doing some preliminary readings on the Syrophoenician woman, and I was like, oh, no. Um, there are a lot of different imp implications to be considered in this story, um, especially in the verbal exchange between Jesus and the woman. So, like, was Jesus never going to do it? Did the woman change his mind? Was it just a lesson for the disciples who were probably with him? To be honest, th there's a lot. To be honest, I, I really did have some pretty strong initial reactions and feelings to this exchange. It's hard. It's kind of, it's hard to read. Um, Marissa, a few weeks ago, when she was talking about Hagar, she was really open with us about how she struggled to deal with Sarah and Sarah's privilege in the story of Hagar. Um, and, and similarly, it's hard for me to see strong dehumanizing language which compares a group of people to animals even in an analogy, and I mean, this is only heightened by our current context, I think, too. And I have really struggled this week with what to do with that. Um, I read a lot of commentaries about this particular passage, um, and I sort of found one of two things that people try to do with, with this hard word, this hard, this hard piece of scripture. It's either assumed that, one, somehow we today are more like aware or more knowledgeable or smarter or like more woke than Jesus was, like Jesus was like some kind of sexist racist, or, so that's one side, or the other side is, is explaining it away 
um, the words of Jesus are defended using semantics or like a general, it was just culturally accepted, like a gloss over. I don't want to do either one of those things today. What I do want to do is emphasize the importance of leaning into hard scriptures like this. We don't run from them. Um, They're not invaluable to us. Um, Even if you don't come out with concrete answers every time, we have to engage with hard scriptures like this. I don't think that coming out with concrete answers is the point of reading the Bible. and I, I struggled with all these thoughts out loud in our sermon planning meeting and in a couple of the meetings. And um, we didn't come to any definitive answers in those meetings either. So I want to just be really upfront with that. Um, but what I was, I, I was encouraged um, in those times to remember the things what, that I do know about Jesus, what I know about him, and the redemptive arc the story of the Bible takes from beginning to end. There's this arc, this narrative. And then start from there. So knowing that when we read the Bible, it's important to remember the context of each individual story. So we can't just read the story, like pluck it out and read it and be like, oh my gosh, like this is really hard, never mind. We have to take it, we have to take it with the entire context of the story. Because it is, there is something in it for us. So that's where I want to start this morning as we look at the Syrophoenician woman's story. Cool? All right, so as I said already, the story is in two different Gospels. It's in Matthew and in Mark. It's likely that the Gospel of Mark was written first and probably used as a resource for the author of Matthew, and that's likely why the stories are so similar. Both of the books were written to communities of Christians, both Jewish and and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. These groups of of Christians were likely being persecuted for being believers, and this probably happened years after the stories that are recorded happened. I I think we forget about um, when, like the timeline of, of when things were written in the New Testament because of the order they appear like in our Bibles. It's like, oh, well, the Gospels are first, and then like we get to Paul. Um, That's actually not not true. This is really important to remember because both all the authors of the Gospels, um, and, and in particular Matthew and Mark, the authors of Matthew and Mark, were writing with a purpose. They they were writing with specific intentions to a specific audience, and they were crafting a story that had an arc, so they weren't writing in a vacuum. In, in the early church communities, there was still um, a discrepancy over who was in and who was out, like this argument over kingdom priority. We see this both in the message of the gospel writers and even in Paul's letters, some of which were actually written before the gospels were written down. So Paul's language about how Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, like in Galatians, points to this, this discrepancy and this kind of point of tension. He says there's no longer any hierarchy or priority over who's in and who's out. So I think looking at the Gospels, even in this context, um, I want to I continue to kind of build the contextual foundation of our particular story of this woman so we can zoom in a little bit more to see the narrative arcs in the, in the Gospel accounts of, of Mark and Matthew. So all the Gospels track Um, the three-year ministry of Jesus in different ways, um, but all all four of them do that. In both Matthew and Mark, we see Jesus' strategy in his mission, and that was to begin his ministry amongst the Jews, amongst Israel, which is why that it's written down in Matthew's version of this story that Jesus actually says, I can't help you, I, I first came for Israel. Jesus began his ministry with a priority on the Jews because they should have been the most receptive. They were the ones who were looking for the Messiah. Um, Though it becomes clear very quickly through his interactions uh, with non-Jews that the intention, uh, that Jesus' intention is actually for the kingdom blessing to be for all people. And, And this shouldn't be surprising. This is faithful even to the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that he would be a blessing to all people. So looking at the books as a whole, not just the individual stories in them, 
it becomes clearer that the kingdom Jesus is inaugurating is not exclusively for Israel or for Jewish people, but also for non-Jews, also called Gentiles. It's, it's for both. By the end of the Gospels, in the beginning of Acts, Jesus says point blank when he commands his disciples um, to be witnesses to the ends of the earth because the kingdom of God was ever and always expanding. So it's within this story arc that our story that we're looking at today of the Syrophoenician woman lies. So I think that, that was kind of a lot that I just like dumped on you about the Bible. Um, but that's, that's our foundation this morning and how we're going to view and, and study and discuss this story. Um, before we get straight back to her, though, I, I think it's also important to look at what happened before this encounter. So we've kind of gone from, you know, the whole narrative redemptive arc of the entire Bible, we've kind of zoomed in a little bit, to the Gospels, um, and now we're kind of going to look even more into the context of what's before this story, too, because that's typically very important, especially when we're reading um, parables or things that Jesus did in his mission. It's really important to see what comes before and after a particular story, too. So in the preceding verses in Mark chapter 7, Jesus gets into this discussion argument, discussion, whatever, with the Pharisees and the scribes who were the religious elite of Israel, they get into, the, into this discussion over ritual purity or cleanness and uncleanness. So Jesus has been healing and he's been feeding people and traveling all around the Sea of Galilee and he's approached by the Pharisees in Gennesaret, which is somewhere on my map, um, around the Sea of Galilee, like 10 o'clock on the Sea of Galilee is Gennesaret. So the Pharisees come, they follow him there, and they begin to criticize Jesus and his disciples for eating without participating in a ritual hand washing, which was a carefully observed tradition. So I think this sounds, I think sometimes when we look at the Pharisees and we look at like their rigidity um, with laws and with rituals and with traditions, we, we don't understand that. I think it seems very obvious to us. We're like, that seems legalistic and rigid, you know. But I think we need to understand, though, that in this time, ritual and tradition were the way that the religious community kept itself pure as a way of being set apart. And there were things that were specifically clean or unclean. So certain foods, specific practices, um, and even groups of people fell into one of these categories, clean or unclean. And coming into contact with something unclean, like an unclean food, um, or a foreigner, foreigners were certainly considered unclean. So if you came into contact with like a Gentile, that could actually defile you and make you ceremonially unclean. And then there was this whole big process for getting, for getting ceremonially clean again. The religious leaders held this standard up really high, um, but they're, they're chastised about this and constantly called out by Jesus because their worry about defilement didn't come from a desire to be holy, but to be exclusive. So to desire to be holy was to be reminded that they were chosen by God to be a blessing, that they were children in God's family, and they were meant to be an invitation to other people into the same family. Instead, what was meant to remind them of the goodness of God was being corrupted into a tool of religious exclusion. That's what Jesus corrects and is constantly chastising. So in the first verses of Mark 7, we see Jesus rejecting religious exclusivity and empty ritual because it came with no inner transformation. He, he says, there's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. So it's what's, in, what's already in. He's rejecting their whole framework, and in doing so, he's beginning... He's beginning to challenge the places where the kingdom of God was supposed to be found. It was supposed to be found in this outer cleanness, this purity, this ritual purity. So last week, Justin talked about uh, Mary and the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. So this place, the kingdom of God is where things tend to get reversed. 
The last shall be first, the least shall be greatest, and the opposite of that, the first shall be last, the greatest shall be least. And we see this here too. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, but he commends the Syrophoenician woman on her great faith. So her story stands in juxtaposition to Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. She is an outsider, an unclean foreigner, a Gentile, but she's the one that displays a faith that Jesus commends. Where we, the reader, and the writer's original audience expect to find model faith would be in the religious elite, so those who had spiritual authority in a religious framework based on purity. And this is where the Syrophoenician woman stands for us as an Aetzer, as a suitable helper, because she models for us true faith in places where no one expected to find it. So now, let's return to her story. So from, from there, from Gennesaret, he, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. So besides the fact that she's a woman, which has implications in, it, in its own of marginalization, there are only three pieces of information in this whole exchange. It's not very many verses, but there's three pieces of information that give us insight into who this woman was, and I think that each of those three things reveal an unexpected place to find faith. That's kind of our framework as we continue on and look at this story. So the first identifying piece of information that we get is that this woman is a Gentile. She's specifically a, a Greek Syrophoenician living in the region of Tyre that Jesus traveled to on the coast, again, far from the center of his normal activity around the Sea of Galilee. The region of Tyre was a city-state in the country of Phoenicia, which was a part of the Roman province Syria, hence Syrophoenician. Matthew, in Matthew's account, he refers to her as a Canaanite woman, which Canaanite and Syrophoenician could be used interchangeably since it was the same geographical area. So I don't want you to be confused about that. Same woman. So you can see, again, where the region of Tyre is, right there above um, the word Phoenicia, where that arrow is pointing to. Um, and again, far, Jesus had, um, had retired to there. He was intentionally leaving his hub of ministry around the Sea of Galilee. The, the woman being identified as a Syrophoenician in this area is really intentional. It's important to the author that we know that this woman is very clearly an other. She is an other. Readers of that time and, and Mark's audience would have also known that she was from a place, Tyre, that had a history of rivalry with Israel. So during one of the Jewish revolts in the second century BC, um, Tyre and another city-state, Sidon, remained faithful to the Greek ruler Antiochus instead of siding with Israel. So they kind of like left Israel behind. They were like, you're in it for yourself. So, in fact, this puts enmity between the inhabitants of city-states like Sidon and Tyre and Israel. Basically, the Syrophoenician woman could not be more of an outsider. She's a woman who comes from a place that is at odds with the Jews. In Jesus' time, people were marginalized based on their gender, um, their level of foreignness, their religion, their ethnicity, and their mental and physical health. I think this is pretty much generally the same criteria that we use for otherness today, uh, give or take. Difference is a big barrier, even now. How often do we write off or invalidate another's experience because it's not our experience? We don't seek to find anything valuable in difference. But in this story, we find true faith, true faith that is commendable by Jesus in a place of difference. I, I want to say, too, that the Syrophoenician woman herself knows she's an outsider. Like, she knows that. It's not like the Jews were like, all you guys are outsiders, and they were like, why, let's be friends. Like, it wasn't like that. If you were a Gentile, you knew that you would not be accepted 
um, by the Jews that, because they wanted to stay away from you and you were ostracized because you were unclean. It's, it, and that it's remarkable that this woman who knows that she's an outsider still approaches Jesus, a Jewish man, because she believes he can help her daughter. And I want to say, like, while we rightfully laud her willingness and fortitude to cross barriers and boundaries, I think we sometimes fail to realize how much it cost the woman to do so, the risk that she was taking. She was a woman, and she was a foreigner, coming to speak to a known rabbi in a culture whose currency was honor and shame. She risked her reputation, which is how you carry honor or shame, and she risked flat out social rejection, which was a huge deal. Social rejection then was so different than social rejection now, it still sucks now, but at least you know that like, you can still eat if you have been socially rejected. For a woman who had been socially rejected, it was a different case. That was a different story because of this, this honor-shame culture. Finding faith in difference can be really costly. How much does it cost those who are considered other today to break through barriers? Even here at our church, in our journey towards becoming a truly multicultural community, a vision that I, I believe in, to the depths of my soul, I, I want to acknowledge the personal cost and risk that's taken on by people who are other, by people of color, by um, those with disabilities. Anyone who's classified in some way as an other, I, I, wanna, I want to just stop and, and recognize and acknowledge the sacrifice that you're making to, to even be here as we push towards this vision of being a multicultural church. I recognize that the price for you is, is much higher than the prices for me and a lot of us in here. And, and I also want to tell you that I am learning so much about what true faith is and what the expanding kingdom of God looks like through your sacrificial efforts. No one expected to find a model of faith in a foreign woman, in this different person. But Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom is also for her and that she has pursued it with faith and has been heard and has been seen. Again, this is in direct contrast to the efforts of the Pharisees in the previous section. Their expectation of inclusion in the kingdom was, was based off of their ability to follow the rules in certainty. Like, if I just do these specific things, I am clean, I am good. I think we expect to find true faith in the self-assured confidence of the Pharisees, but, but that's not where we find it. Instead, we find it in the desperation of a mother. The, the risks this woman took, her barrier-breaking behavior, was fueled not by self-assurance, but by desperation. Nobody takes a risk if you feel self-assured. You take a risk when you're feeling really desperate. This is, this is verse 25. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So the second identifying piece of information about the woman in this really short story is that she was a desperate mother. Her daughter was being possessed by a demon, and she was desperate for help. Um, if I'm being really honest, I've lived a, a, a pretty privileged life. I haven't had too many experiences of feeling truly desperate for something, well, maybe with the exception of sermon prep. Um, but I, I can say that I have, uh, I have definitely felt uh, the most desperate I've ever felt when I was looking for help for my kids, for sure. Um, so when Jolie was 13 days old, Jolie's my oldest, uh, she's eight now, but when she was 13 days old, I was literally the most exhausted I'd ever been in my entire life. Um, I was still healing from birthing her. I had slept about three hours in two days. Um, and that in those 13 days, I was having to drive 45 minutes one way every day to get Jolie's blood tested and to visit a lactation consultant. It sucked. So at 13 days old, we were on the way home. All of our appointments were done. 
Um, I actually was um, talking to my mother-in-law on the phone because I was already feeling very desperate. I was about to ask her to come and watch the baby so I could take a nap, which if you know me at all, for me to ask for that kind of help, I was real desperate. Um, so we're driving down the road, and I'm talking to my mother-in-law, and I'm so tired. Um, and I'm, I'm looking down the road, and I see this pickup truck pull out, kind of like come to this cross, this cross street. I was on a highway, and kind of come to this rolling stop. And I, I remember this so clearly because the truck was bright yellow. Like it was like um, school bus yellow. And it, it paused at the intersection for like a second and then like kept going, and I'm coming at it this way. I, I like gasped, I think, I, I, I didn't have time to think. I slammed on the brakes, but I still ended up T-boning the truck right at that front tire, going about 70 miles an hour, with my 13-day-old baby in the back seat, having been fueled by three hours of sleep in 48 hours. I remember upon impact, Jolie, who was in the back seat, she was completely asleep because she was exhausted too. She like screamed this little baby scream. Like she had been asleep and I think it just scared her. But before the airbags even stopped smoking, I was out of the car. I had like scooped Jolie out of her car seat and I was literally just standing in the middle of the road. Like we had stopped traffic completely. I was standing in the middle of the road screaming for help. Now, I don't remember a lot, like I, I kind of remember it. Um, I was kind of in this, this other place, but I must have looked, I must have looked so scary. Like the guy who I hit never came up to me to see if we were okay. I remember actually feeling really offended about that. Um, but later as I remembered sort of what I must have looked like, I would not have come up to me either. I, I was full throat screaming for like minutes at a time I had massive, like, dark circles under my eyes. I had not showered. I had blood all over my face because the airbag smacked me in the face. Um, and I'm just standing there holding a tiny little baby screaming. I was a desperate mother. Like, I, I had no care for my own well-being. I just was so scared that something had happened to my baby. And I was just desperate. This kind woman who was somewhere in the traffic behind us got out of her car to help me. She was so kind. Um, but I, I just remember I, she was talking to me and I was still screaming and I did not stop screaming until an ambulance came and a paramedic got out of the ambulance, came over to me and told me that I needed to calm down for the baby's sake. That's the first time I stopped screaming. Now, both of us, Jolie and me, and the other driver were fine. We were fine. But I remember feeling that in my desperation, I would have done literally anything to help my kid, anything. And so as I was studying this week, I kept thinking that this must have been the way the woman in the story felt. She, I mean, we don't know this. We don't know her history. I imagine, though, that she, was, she must have been at the end of her rope. She must have tried everything. We know that she's so desperate because she takes this huge risk and asks Jesus, again, a Jewish man, as a foreign woman, for help. Not one time, but two times. And I think what's remarkable here is what we find in desperation, in addition to her faith, is, is agency. Her desperation actually directs her to find her own agency. It's really important. She, so here's, um, we'll continue in the story. She begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said, For saying that you can go, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. A, a couple of weeks ago, um, Christ City co-sponsored an event here in D.C. on racial justice, and we had um, the great opportunity to hear Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil speak. You should look her up. Really, really good. Um, and she, Brenda Salter McNeil, talked about what it really means to be desperate for the kingdom. She, uh, she referenced that song from the 90s that so many churches sung every week. Um, do you guys remember? It's like, and I, I'm desperate for you. That one? You remember it? Because y'all sung it like a bunch, didn't you? We sung it so much. She said, 
she's been doing uh, racial justice and racial reconciliation work for a long time. And um, she said that I remember when all the churches were singing that song over and over again. Um, but then she, she, she's, she called us, the collective church, she called us out for singing something that maybe we didn't really mean. Maybe we're more like the Pharisees than we thought, with a short-sighted vision of just how far the kingdom can reach because we want to be able to see it all and have control and be comfortable in it. At some point, we like find a way to just make it work or come up with like a Band-Aid solution, and we stop asking, and we stop seeking the kingdom because we're not desperate anymore. And when we're not desperate, we lose sight of our own responsibility and our own agency in the kingdom. We, I think we, like, we have this idea that we're only being truly faithful when we're like feeling it, really feeling it, when we're certain about something that we believe, when we know exactly what it is we're after, we've defined it and we have bullet points, we have the research endnotes to like back it up. But well, what can we learn about true faith and true belief? And true belief is an action, not just an intellectual acceptance of an idea. What can we learn about true faith and true belief from those who've experienced desperation and turn to Jesus. We see desperation as a place of helplessness and hopelessness, but in this story, we see it as the place where agency is realized. The, the Syrophoenician woman's desperation moves her to action, to faith and action. And we're left to consider that perhaps we can't experience true faith without coming to a place where we've exhausted all of our logic and all of our efforts, when we have no answers, and we're desperate for something outside of ourselves that we cannot conjure up. Maybe that's where we see the kingdom of God at work and find our own capacity to be an agent of the kingdom. So, so far as we've walked through this story, we've looked at how faith can be found in unexpected places like difference and like desperation. There's one more unexpected spot we need to talk about, which I think is the hardest one. So let's, let's, let's read the story again. We'll finish it. From there he set out and went to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. So this is the part of the story and the analogy in which Jesus uses um, children sitting at a table eating and dogs as scavengers. Um, and and this, this analogy is alluding to, to Jesus' missional strategy that we already talked about, that first he came for the Jew and then the Gentile, for everyone but first the Jew, then the Gentile. So looking at this in the context, the bigger context, as we have, his harsh language here is perhaps not referring to the worth of the woman, but alluding to the previous conversation about cleanness and uncleanness, purity and impurity. So like we talked about before, the, the views, the view of the Jews towards outsiders, Gentiles, was not just intolerance, but in many ways, it was full-out disgust. Dogs, at, in the time, dogs were mostly street scavengers. They carried diseases, and they, they were literally filthy, like they were literally not clean, and they ate what other people did not find acceptable. Jesus' analogy redirects us to remember the conversation that he had with the Pharisees before this story, and their view of those who were considered unclean. Like the Gentiles, they were disgusting, they were unacceptable, and they were to be avoided at all costs. So we talked about finding faith in difference, but what then of finding faith in places that disgust us? It's an unexpected place, for sure, but I think for a different reason. Finding faith in a place towards which we feel disgust is less about like being surprised that we find it there, 
but it's actually about how we expect not to find it in a disgusting place. We actually actively do not look in those places because we are certain we expect not to find faith there. The woman knew how she was viewed, but in her desperation, she pushes through this barrier, even this barrier of disgust and difference. She accepts that she may be viewed as lesser and held in contempt. So verse 27, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, for saying that, you can go. The demons left your daughter. And she went home and found her daughter. And the demon gone. So basically, the Syrophoenician woman's like, all right, fine. I accept that I am not a Jew, and I am an outsider. And I get how gross that is to you. But I am desperate, and I think that this kingdom and the power that you bring to bear is for me too. She is desperate for the kingdom to extend through barriers of intolerance and even disgust. And by granting her request and healing her daughter, Jesus confirms that is exactly what the kingdom does. It breaks through those barriers. I think it's human tendency when we're reading any kind of a story to look for like who we relate to in the story. Uh, most often, we want to be the protagonists. At least I do. You also, yes, you also do. We want to be the hero of the story, whoever that is. The writers of the gospel knew this too, and they used this, this tendency to highlight the impact of the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Who is the hero of this story? Who, who is the hero of this whole chapter? It is not the religious elite, but in a great reversal, it is the desperate Gentile woman. When we consider what this story means for us, do you think that you are her in the story? Are we like the woman who's desperate for the expanding kingdom? Or conversely, and harder, are we like the ones Jesus rebukes because we've become the gatekeepers? This, this woman, as an aider to us, exhorts us to not become the ones who shrink the kingdom of God into something that we can hold, who act as gatekeepers to the kingdom, but instead to live into the kingdom's expanding nature. We must pray, we must look for God's kingdom everywhere we can, bringing it even to the fringes if we have to, because we know it's there, that the kingdom is there even in places that we consider filthy or uncomfortable or even disgusting. In, in the current happenings in our country, it's been easy, I feel like, to, to spot those who are being marginalized to this extreme place. Um, it has been really difficult for me to engage um, with and talk about the family crisis at the border and the blatant oppression that group of people is experiencing, um, it brings up a lot of feelings. Um, I mean, the, <laughs> the parallels between what we're talking about today, the story of this Syrophoenician woman and her desperation as a mother, and those parents who are desperate for their kids, they're almost too obvious. Like, I almost didn't mention them, because it's like, well. And I, I want to be clear, and I want to say that we can't miss, we certainly can't miss seeing the ways that those people in crisis at the border model faith to us in their desperation. We cannot miss that. The kingdom of God is expansive enough to include those on the other side of national lines drawn by human beings. And when I pray about this situation, I'm desperate for the kingdom to keep expanding to include them. That's what I'm asking for. Yes, God, in the expansive nature of your kingdom, let it keep expanding. Let it include them. But I, I want to say something hard here, um, and this is really, it's, it's, it's for me, and, um, and, and, and I think it's for, for us. If we're going to talk about the kingdom of God expanding, its expansive nature, and who it includes, it also reaches those who you view with contempt and disgust. The, the people you marginalize, even in your own heart for whatever reason, you know, those people who you see as ignorant or dangerous or callous or racist or sexist or across the aisle 
or ungodly, just those who are so different than us that not only do we not understand them, but we actually look at their views and perspective with contempt. If the Syrophoenician woman has taught us anything, it's that we can't define who's in and who's out. Are we desperate for the expanding kingdom to include those people too? Do we pray for the kingdom to expand that far? Or are we just hoping and praying for the defeat and shame to come upon the people who we disagree with in disgust? In our weekly staff meetings, um, every Tuesday we start with a devotional. And a few weeks ago, we were struggling as a staff through this passage talking about vengeance. Super fun on a Tuesday morning. Um, But I was really convicted that morning that um, I don't pray for those who disagree with me or that I find whose views I find like disgusting or non-understandable. I don't pray for them because I don't expect the kingdom to be found there ever. Now, I'm not trying to excuse abhorrent behavior. I'm not doing that. It's real. It needs to be checked appropriately. But what is our reaction to it? Are we after revenge or are we after repentance? Do we want the people who disgust us to be wiped out and banned, just like banned from the kingdom forever? Or do we truly want to see them transformed through true faith and become a part of the expanding kingdom that we're also in? Do we want that so much that we are desperate for it? Jesus' response to the Syrophoenician woman's faith clearly displays his refusal to be a nationalistic Jewish Messiah only, even though that's what a lot of people had expected of him. Jesus is refusing the idea that the kingdom of God is exclusive instead of expansive. There will be people included in the kingdom of God that we were initially disgusted by, A few weeks ago, Marissa played a spoken word piece by Micah Borns called Freak Show. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, you should. But Freak Show talks about the different kinds of people, the unexpected kinds of people that are included in the kingdom of God. Are we okay with that? Or even more, are we desperate for that kingdom? Are we looking for, praying for, desperate for signs of it in people who are different than us? A different race, someone with less money, someone with more money, a progressive, a conservative, someone who's less educated, somebody who's more educated. Our temptation to be kingdom gatekeepers is why it's so important to intentionally hear and listen to the stories of those who are different than us, those who we ourselves marginalize or write off for whatever reason, the stories of the ones who we think are the least likely to be valuable. One of my favorite songwriters is named Sarah Groves. She, um, she spent some time um, in Rwanda, um, kind of getting walked through the history um, of the genocide and seeing, hearing stories about the horrors and the devastation even in the aftermath of all of that. And she wrote a song about how unexpected it was to find hope and faith in the midst of suffering and despair. The lyrics of the chorus of this song go like this. Tell me what you know about God and the world and the human soul, how so much can go wrong and still there are songs. She recognized that there were deep lessons to be learned through the stories of those that had suffered so greatly and that perhaps there was a truer faith there than she had ever seen before. When we listen to stories from unexpected places, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, allowing ourselves to be challenged in our perspectives and our biases. And we look to Aetzers like the Syrophoenician woman to find our agency and our responsibility in living into the expanding kingdom of God. The Syrophoenician woman moves forward the redemptive arc of the Bible, 
breaking barriers and reminding us of the expansiveness of the kingdom. It's not just for us. We need her to tell us what she knows. Um, I tried really hard to make this sermon uh, fit with a title, We Found Love in a Hopeless Place. <laughs> I think mostly just because I wanted to like sing Rihanna or something, but um, it didn't work. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. <laughs> While we do find love in an unexpected place, it is not a hopeless one. The Syrophoenician woman's actions were motivated by a hope-fueled faith out of her desperation. She believed the kingdom of God could be for her, too, even if other people didn't. And she unexpectedly, unexpectedly ends up being the hero of the story, like so many others in the mission of Jesus. The religious elite are often chastised. Jesus' own disciples are recorded again and again as just, like, not getting it. It's the unexpected ones, the, the women who are the first at the tomb, at Jesus' tomb, instead of hiding with all the men. It's, it's the people who were from unclean Gentile places, like the Good Samaritan, which would have been a shocking twist to a Jewish audience because of their similar view of Samaria and this region of Tyre. It's, it's in the children that Jesus openly invited into inclusion. It was the poor and the desperate like the woman who touched Jesus' garment, even though that was not allowed because her constant bleeding made her continually unclean. By touching Jesus, she's making him unclean too. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't chastise her. Like the Syrophoenician woman, she becomes the hero of the story. She becomes the one whose faith Jesus commends. The kingdom of God is full of, of surprises so many things about it are found in unexpected places. Instead of the Messiah coming as like a powerful military leader, he came as a baby in a stable with a bunch of animals. And instead of, of political domination, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God by living a humble life in which he served and then dying a criminal death so that those of us who were viewed as outsiders could be made children of God. None of this was expected. So just to kind of um, conclude and challenge us today, we, we have to get used to the fact that the kingdom of God is in the unexpected places. And praise God for stories like, like the Syrophoenician woman who remind us of that. Will you pray with me? God, we sit today with... Um, or at least I, I stand today with, with hard words. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I don't know why it's our tendency to, um, to want to exclude and um, to want to control where you move and what you do. We ask God that... Um, that you give us faith to be able to accept that, that, um, that we're going to find your kingdom in the places that we least expect it or the places actually that we don't even want it to be. And I pray, God, that you would push us towards those places. Thank you, God, that your kingdom is expansive. Thank you that we get to be part of it. Thanks for the example of this woman whose name we don't even know. Thank you for the way that she models this kind of faith and teaches us about your movement and your work and your kingdom. We are grateful. Amen. <laughs>